morning, everyone. My name is Todd Sapisa. <laughs> I am the teaching pastor, which if you've been here in the last few weeks, you wouldn't know that, so I wanted to introduce myself. But man, what a privilege to sit where you're sitting this morning and to hear over the last several weeks from our pastoral staff who handled God's Word so well, so richly. I, I was completely blessed by each and every one of them, and I'm grateful that uh, we have a church where we have men uh, equipped and able to do that. So what a blessing. Um, how many of you remember um, the book written by Stephen Covey called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? Okay, probably most everyone. There was a time early in my professional career where it was a really popular resource for leadership development. And I probably could tell you one or two of those habits uh, from memory, but I'll never forget the illustration he used to help make his point. It involved a glass jar, some large rocks, some pebbles, and some sand. Now, if you tried to fill that jar, as you see on be my left, with all the little things first, like the sand and the pebbles, by the time you got to the big rocks, they wouldn't fit. And so for this to work, you actually had to put the big rocks in first, and then the pebbles, and then the sand would kind of sift and move in between everything else. See, use this illustration to help explain how important it is to center your life around your highest priorities. Those are the big rocks. They always need to come first. Because when you do, everything else just kind of finds its proper place. I believe that's similar to what Paul has in mind when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, which we have already looked at, it says when he when he writes, for I delivered to you as of first importance. So think big rocks. When I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. See, when we center our lives on these gospel truths, these big rocks, then everything else finds its proper place. We have a freedom that comes from his forgiveness. We have a security that's found in his acceptance. We have a peace from relying on his promises. As we've been saying, the gospel changes everything. It changes you. It changes me. It changes us. It transforms our life. It, it unites our community. And, and ultimately, the gospel is what brings redemption to the world. Because in the end, the gospel is what makes all things new. So that's what we're going to look at together this morning. Before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, I am convinced uh, that we, myself included, uh, have yet to mind to mine the riches, the depth of the riches of the gospel and its truth from all creation in the ways in which you have planned and purposed to bring redemption to the world through your son, Jesus Christ. And so maybe, Lord, in your gracious mercy, would you, as we look at your word this morning, just maybe dig us uh, may we dig a little deeper into those riches and understand the, the depth of the beauty and wonder of what you've done on our behalf. May we see the evidence of your love 
be overwhelmed by the presence of your grace. Speak to our hearts, Lord. We are listening. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so I want to begin this morning with a kind of a heavy question, but it's important, okay? And it's this. What on earth are you here for? Why were you created? What is your purpose in life? I mean, those are big rock questions, right? And I want you to think about that for a minute and realize that even though it's a profound question, the Bible has a very simple answer. You were created to live in a life-giving, joy-filled eternally satisfying relationship with God. That is your purpose. That's where you find meaning. I don't remember who said it, but someone once said that our souls are restless until we find rest in Him. You were made to flourish in loving fellowship with your heavenly Father. And if we go back to the very beginning, we we see the evidence of this truth. We can start in the book of Genesis that tells the story of how God created everything out of nothing. As He spoke the world into existence, bringing light into this vast domain of darkness. He placed the sun and the moon and the stars with, with the precision of a surgeon. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26 says, Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created the stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. In addition to the stars, the scripture tells us he brought forth the seas, the water, and he Filled it with life. And then it says that he separated the water with the land and he filled it with life. There were animals and and vegetation and birds that filled the sky. It was a perfect paradise. But it was incomplete. Because there was a purpose behind the beauty and wonder of God's handiwork. All of it existed for the crowning jewel of creation. And I want us to look at that together in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. You can follow along or read it on the screen, but this is what it says, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that it is That is on the surface of the earth. And every tree that which yields fruit and seed. It shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth. And to every bird of the sky. And to everything that moves on the earth. Which has life. I have given 
every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning. That was the sixth day. You see, God created a perfect paradise in order for humanity to flourish in fellowship with him. He didn't create mankind for the world. He created the world for mankind. A world filled with wonder. Adam and Eve lacked for nothing. They lived in a life-giving, joy-filled, soul-satisfying relationship with God, their Creator. And the Bible tells us that everything in creation was good because God made it. But it, when it comes to humanity, it says that it was very good. And why? Because we were made for God. We were made to live in a life relationship with Him. We were created to experience the infinite abundance of His goodness. We were brought into existence out of an overflow of His love. Male and female. Made in the image of the undivided fellowship of the Trinity. Created from community. For community. Living in humble dominion over all of His creation. And walking in the loving presence of a good and beautiful God. Sounds pretty awesome, doesn't it? And that's because it is. It's incredibly awesome. There was nothing that existed in the hearts of Adam and Eve that God did not provide. They lacked for nothing. But we need to remember, they still had to choose. Their relationship with God was built on trust. So when God said you can eat from every tree in the garden except for one, they had to trust Him. They had to believe in God's wisdom as far beyond their own. They had to take God at His word believing that He had their highest good in mind. Which is where Satan enters the scene to set his trap. He enters the garden and begins a deceptive dialogue with Eve. He convinced her and her husband that God was withholding something good from them. And instead of trusting in God's word, they chose to go their own way. They relied on their own wisdom and understanding instead of the wisdom of God who created them. You see, even though God created them to flourish in a life-giving relationship with Him, they willfully chose to pursue pleasure apart from God. Using wisdom based on what felt right, what looked good, what seemed right in their own eyes. And that seed of rebellion exists in the heart of all humanity including you and I. The psalmist writes in Psalm 14, verse 2, he says, The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men, all humanity, to see if there are 
any who understand, any who seek after God. He says, they've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. So as we go back to the garden, we can look at what took place and we can say, that could be the end of the story. Because there is absolutely nothing that we can do to restore what sin has destroyed. We are eternally separated from God's presence unless God makes a way for us. That, my friends, is the good news of the gospel. We find hope in this gospel story from the very beginning. We see it written within all of creation. God's heart for humanity being put on display. And a promise is made that begins with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It carries over into Moses. And then that promise is really put on display in the construction of the tabernacle. But it was never, don't miss this, it was never an idea of man seeking God. Remember, there is no one who seeks God. This is always an effect of God making His way towards man. For example, no one woke up one day and said, you know what, I have an idea. Let's make a house for God so that He could dwell among us. That's not what happened. It was all God's idea. Exodus chapter 25 verse 8, God says, And let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you. Concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furnitures, so shall you make it. So this was not only God's idea, this was also God's design. He literally gave them a blueprint of everything that would take place and how it was to be constructed, filling the tabernacle with imagery and materials that pointed them back to the garden. It's highlighting God's heart for His original design. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 29 says, Then He carved all the walls of the house round about with carved engravings of cherubim, palm trees, open flowers, inner and outer sanctuaries, it goes on, it says that the curtains were embroidered with pomegranates. The golden lampstand was shaped like a tree. And within the center of this tabernacle was the holy of holies where the very glory of God was to dwell. You get the picture of God's presence in the midst of a garden. It's as if the tabernacle was a miniature garden of Eden. A replica of God's original design, and a reflection of His heart's desire to restore what sin had destroyed. A desire for humanity to live in a life-giving, joy-filled, eternally satisfying relationship with God, our Creator. But the barrier of sin stood in the way, and it separates us from a relationship with God. And so built within the tabernacle design, God instituted a sacrificial system, a visual demonstration of the requirement of an atoning sacrifice. Early on, it was the blood of a lamb that was shed as a, a covering for those who came before God with a, as a, 
with a repentant heart, but it was a reminder of sin that pointed to their desperate need for forgiveness. Because true forgiveness cannot be achieved by a sacrifice that we make for God. Instead, forgiveness is only found in a sacrifice that God makes for us. It has to be the just on behalf of the unjust. Remember, no one seeks after God. We can only respond to God's loving initiative towards us. And it's been happening from the very beginning of time. In fact, it's why Jesus came. If you look at Luke chapter 19, verse 10, it says, Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. And just like we saw with the temple, the biblical language points us back to the garden, where it all began. In fact, John, when he begins his gospel, uses creation language. He quotes from Genesis 1-1 when he says, in the beginning. And then he goes on to describe how everything came into being. He described how light shines in the darkness. Sound familiar? How that light was the life of men. Sound familiar? And how that life became the light to all of humanity. All of this, a reflection of the imagery of creation. And then he goes on in John chapter 1, verse 14. And it says, the word became flesh. Your Bible says dwelt. The original language literally says tabernacled. Do you see it? The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we saw His glory, glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So like the tabernacle, Jesus now becomes the place where God's glory dwells. That's what we learned in Hebrews, isn't it? Chapter 1, verse 3, He, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. In other words, when you see Jesus, you see the very presence and glory of God. He drew near to us. He moved first so that we could draw near to him. But only because he was willing to lay down his life for our sins. Remember, the just for the unjust. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26 says, Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Which means Jesus didn't offer a sacrifice somehow on our behalf. He became a sacrifice on our behalf. That's why John the Baptist introduced him as the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. This is of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. That he was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. But why? So that we could be restored into the life-giving, joy-filled, eternally satisfying relationship with God that we were created for. This is the only place that we find meaning and purpose in life. 
This is of first importance. His forgiveness is how we are set free from the power of sin's control. It's how we become everything God created us to be. See, Adam and Eve in the beginning were banished from the presence of God because of their betrayal. But now, through Christ, we can be restored to our relationship with God through our belief. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, here it is, the gospel of your salvation, having also, there's the word, believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. That word pledge here is really important. It's a word that literally means first installment. So the Holy Spirit is like a down payment of our eternal inheritance yet to come. It's a foretaste of the new creation. In fact, the Bible actually describes us as a new creation in Christ. And collectively, as a church... It says that we're a holy temple. Do you see the connections? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 22 says, We are built together in a dwelling of God in the Spirit. We become the residence where God's glory is meant to dwell. The place where God is known. The place where God is served. The place where God is worshipped. In other words, much like we saw with the tabernacle, the church becomes a miniature new creation, a picture of things yet to come, moving us one step closer to the promise of the fulfillment of what he will complete. It's what we read in first, or Second Peter chapter 3, verse 13, when he says, but according to his promise, we are looking for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You see, God is not going to remodel the earth to somehow make it better. It says that he's going to make all things new. And the whole earth, at that point in time, becomes a holy sanctuary. Listen how it's described in Revelation chapter 21. Just picture this in your mind. We've looked at this before, but I want you to Think about it in the context that we've been talking about. And I want you to go back to the original design of what you were created for. And let's just see how this is fulfilled. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. First heaven and the first earth passed away and there, there is no longer any sea. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them. And they will be His people, and He, God, will Himself be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write these words because they're faithful and true. 
It's not going to be on the screen, but I want to read a little more beginning in verse 22. Listen to this. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord, the God Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and there will, they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. In other words, Satan, Satan is banished at this point. No longer will his deception make its way into the perfect paradise. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. If you continue to read, in fact I will, it won't be on the screen, you're going to see the images of the garden return. Listen to this. Verse chapter 22. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was, think garden, the tree of life. Bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on His foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and there will no, be no need of light or of lamp, of light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. The tree of life, the river of life flowing from the throne of God. It is a paradise of peace where humanity flourishes for all eternity in loving fellowship with God. You see, God created everything in the beginning with the end in mind. Do you see that? And never, never, don't miss this, never at any time did we do anything to make our way to God. He has always and forever made His way to us. Our redemption in the end is a result of His relentless pursuit to the point, get this, that we can't even come to the place where we say, I love you, God. We can only say, I love you too. We love only because he first loved us. So if you're here this morning and you have not put your trust in Christ, I hope you see with a fresh perspective the way the loving God has pursued you. That you were created for a purpose. That you were made to live in a life-giving, joy-filled, eternally satisfying relationship with God. And that actually begins the moment you believe. You become a new creation in Christ. Old things have gone. And behold, new things will come. He wants you to find freedom in his forgiveness. He wants you to find security in his acceptance. He wants you to find peace in his promises. 
Sure, the enemy of the garden still exists in our world today, and he'll try to convince you that it's too good to be true. That, that God is withholding something from you. And in a sense, he's a little bit right when he says it's too good to be true because the Bible actually tells us that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. So however good you think it might be is far greater than you can ever ask or imagine. But love is a choice. And it's always and ever always has been a relationship built on trust. A willingness to take God at his word. To trust in him more than you trust yourself. And I hope, I hope and pray that if you're in that place this morning. That you would give some thought to a good and beautiful God. Who has relentlessly pursued you. Knowing that you have been created for so much more than anything in this world could offer you. That you were created for something that exists long after this world is gone. And a new creation comes. And we live eternally in a life-giving, joy-filled, eternally satisfying relationship with God as we were created for. Now, for those of us who've made that decision, let's ask ourselves this question. Are we living out of our new creation identity. Do we walk in the Spirit so that we, where we go, are putting the glory of God on display so that people get at least a glimpse of the first fruits of paradise that is made possible for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ? That's what Scripture tells us is true. The question is, is it true for you? Is it true for me? And then as a church, are we a model of a new creation community? Is this a place that is filled with peace and unity? Is this a place where God is known? Where he is served? Where he is worshipped? Do we see the gospel being put on display? Because remember, the gospel changes everything. We've been talking about that for four weeks now. It changes you. It changes me. It changes us. It transforms our life so that we become a miniature version of the new creation realities that will one day be known in full to all of humanity. So may we live out of Paul's admonition. We started with this verse, and I want to close with it this morning. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether we are gathered together or we are out in the world, we are always standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, so grateful for the way you so purposefully have made yourself known and the relentless pursuit of humanity from the very beginning, showing us your desire for us to flourish in fellowship with you, that despite 
our sinful depravity, our prideful humanity, you have drawn near to us so that we could draw near to you. And so I pray, Lord, whether we have made that decision or not, that we see your relentless pursuit of us. That you are a good and beautiful God. And you have called us into a life-giving, joy-filled, eternally satisfying relationship with you. And that is to begin the moment we believe. And so may we live that out more fully and faithfully each and every day of our life. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand. Love that song. Isn't it a good reminder? But there's something in that song, though, that I want you to think about. It talks about how when we all get to heaven. And I think if you look at Scripture, it really isn't about us getting to heaven. It's about God bringing heaven to us. He did it with the tabernacle. He did it with Jesus. And in the new creation, he will do it once and completely and finally where we have a new heavens and a new earth and we live in the holy sanctuary of God. In his presence, face to face. And so I just want to encourage you to just keep that in mind because there's a lot in this world that just doesn't make sense. It feels heavy. It feels burdensome. But isn't it good to think that someday we shed all that for what is good and right and true for all eternity? Life-giving, joy-filled, eternally satisfying relationship with God. That's what you were created for. And I pray that we can, as a church, live that more fully and faithfully today until that day arrives. Amen? So as we close in prayer, I want to just remind you, we have an important meeting for all the teachers in the children's wing this morning. And so that room has been set up and ready for them, but in order for them to go to the meeting, you need to get your children. So if you'll make your way that way as soon as we're done here, that would be a great help to us. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you for uh, your relentless pursuit. Mm. I'm just overwhelmed by how diligently, faithfully you pursued us, knowing that if it were meant for us to pursue you, it would never happen. There's no one who seeks after God. And so, God, you have sought after us. You have made a way. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have done on the cross for our sins so that we can live eternally, satisfied, joy-filled, life-giving relationship with you. May we taste, get a foretaste of what has been given to us in our relationship now that points to what we will have for all eternity. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.